Emmaus Road was kind of restarted or reborn out of an existing congregation uh, about five years ago. Uh, it was very close to my heart that we would be a community uh, that talked about the things uh, that really mattered. Uh, that we didn't spend our Sundays and our times together just um, talking about surface level things, but that we would dive into God's word, uh, that we would talk about the difficult things that the Bible has to say, and that we would take on the whole counsel of scripture. And uh, we, we really understood that because we've named ourselves Emmaus Road, but the story of the Emmaus Road uh, is, is found in Luke chapter 24, and it's a story about these two disciples on resurrection evening that are traveling together, and they're really wrestling with what to do with the current events of their world. Of course, Jesus had just been resurrected, and rumors were flying, and people didn't know if that was uh, for sure true. And so these two disciples um, are walking along, and they're wrestling with the news of their day. And uh, that's what we're going to do for the next three weeks, is wrestle with the news of the day, the cultural issues that uh, are, you, you just can't go anywhere without hearing uh, about gun control, immigration, and homosexuality. And uh, so we're going to wrestle with these things over the course of the next three weeks. Uh, and I encourage you to uh, open your hearts and, and minds to, to the ways in which God would uh, want to challenge you over, this, over the course of this series. I have a lot of opening comments to kind of set the, set the foundation and expectations for this, uh, for this series. Uh, <clears throat> most series that we walk through are planned about a year in advance. Um, I try to do about every fall... Uh, I will go away for a couple of days, and when I come back, I have at least a sketch or an outline of what we're going to do for the entire next calendar year. Uh, so while most series that we plan, we've been thinking about and working with in our heads and our minds and, and hearts for a long time, uh, this series and the idea for this series uh, came about about three weeks ago. <laughs> and uh, it came about because, um, you know, some scheduling changes need to be made to the outline that we had, and we ended up with three weeks that we needed to fill, and I thought, you know, what better opportunity to talk about some issues of our day, because we need to talk about them. So, um, let me make one thing really clear. This is not a political rally, <laughs> okay? When we talk about these political issues, we're not gathering here together to, uh, to declare something and, and issues that we all agree on. And when, when, the, when the speaker or the guy with the microphone says something, then we all clap and wave our flags. This is not that environment. This is not a political rally. You probably already knew that. Um, in other words, though, I won't, be dis I won't be declaring where I think that you should land on any of these issues because you're a Christian. If you're here today and you're a person of faith, I am not going to tell you because you're a person of faith, you need to land in this position on this issue. Because we have to realize that that there will be Christians, good, God-fearing, God-loving Christians that will fall on both sides of all three of the issues that we'll talk about. And we need to embrace that, and we need to welcome that. Because for far too long, the division of the political lines in culture have also divided the church. And enough is enough of that. We have got to celebrate and recognize that there is diversity within uh, the kingdom of God, and the people of God when it comes to these issues. So, so it's not a political rally. We're not all here to 
decide what, or, or state what we all agree on already, but rather recognize um, that, we, that there is differences of opinion. And we're also here to recognize that these are complex issues with no easy answers, okay? Uh, the three issues that we're going to be talking about are complex. They have multiple perspectives and views by which they can be seen. And there is no way in the time that I have to preach that I could say all there is to say about these issues. Some of you will leave here today, and the thing that the perspective, the, the point that you are most passionate about regarding gun control, which we're going to talk about today, I don't even touch. And you're going to leave today saying, you know what, that, he, he didn't even talk about the most important thing. And so we need to realize, first of all, we don't all agree, and there's room for that, and that's good. And we also need to recognize that, that I can't possibly say everything that there is to say. Uh, I already preach long. And so if I tried to say everything there was to say, you guys would be here even longer. It would be like watching a Lord of the Rings sermon, okay? And, and you guys don't want to do that. If we were in another country, I could do that, and you guys would all be okay with it. And, uh, you know, church would just start whenever, and the preacher would go however long he wants. And then when we're done, we're done, you know? But here in this culture, there's a lot of pressure to get to Olive Garden for the hot breadsticks right on time and all of that kind of stuff. So, so we'll do our best to, to recognize that and honor that. Uh, but these are, are complex issues, and, and politics are one of the most divisive things in our culture. And the reality is, is that they are divisive in the church, and I'm calling for us to end that because I want to declare this series will not divide this church. Are you with me? This series will not divide this church. Uh, whatever I say, whatever you think or perspective that you have, uh, there is room for disagreement. There is room for questions. There is room for offering opinions. Because my goal today is simply to offer uh, some perspective into the conversation. My goal is simply to join the conversation and give us all food for thought. Okay? I have a few more things that I want to say to kind of set the groundwork. <laughs> because I, I'm not nervous. I'm not nervous. I'm not nervous. I'm not nervous. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> my contribution is this, um, or, or, or the, uh, the perspective that I'm taking on all these issues is, is this. As I have heard Christians uh, talk back and forth about these issues, it seems to me that overwhelmingly we talk about political issues from a political perspective. And what I want to offer to us is talking about or thinking about political issues from a theological perspective. Uh, that is to say that when I say that we talk about political things from a political perspective, a lot of times Christians will say, well, I'm in favor of this or I'm against this because of what it will do to the economy or what it will do to this or what it will do to that. And, and we need to realize and, and, and declare that the gospel teaches us to demonstrate our allegiance not to the almighty dollar, not to the market or the economy, but our allegiance belongs to the kingdom of God. And so I want to offer theological perspective on political issues. Uh, because what I see so often is, is Christians not intentionally putting their faith aside, but only talking about political issues from a purely political perspective. And that's easy to do. And so, uh, so that's what I wanted to do. And um, let it be said that I also see far too often Christians placing their hope in a candidate or a policy as their saving grace. Too many times, people of faith place the hope of their faith and their saving grace in the, the, 
the election of a candidate or the passing of a policy. And let me declare to you, church, that that is a grievously misplaced hope. That our hope lies not in policy, not in candidates. Our hope lies purely in the person of Christ. And I, I see this every election. And with Christians, it tends to be the Republican candidate. But they feel like the world is going to end, that the church will stop being the church, and that all things are going to hell if the Democratic candidate is elected. And that is a misplaced hope. And what I said a couple of weeks ago to sort of prepare your hearts and minds for this series is that whatever happens in the cultural landscape and whatever happens in the political landscape, the mission of the church does not change. And so if you want to know sort of the bottom line of all of these issues, it is this. What are we to do in today's political climate? What are we to do in today's cultural climate? We are to be faithful. We are to be obedient. We are to continue to be the church. Because whatever happens in politics and whatever happens in culture, God has promised to protect his church. And so the church isn't going away. The church may become persecuted. The church may be pushed to the margins. The church may, may suffer all kinds of things, but the church is not going away. And the mission of the church is the same. Okay? And then, and then this. With any of these issues, our perspectives are dramatically changed as they become personal. In other words... If any of you um, lost a loved one in the shootings at the Aurora Theater last July, you changed the way you thought about gun control. If, uh, if any of you have thought about homosexuality just in terms of ideas, but never knew someone who was homosexual, your perspective is different than someone who knows someone that struggles with same-sex attraction and yet is doing their very best to live a Christian lifestyle a God-honoring, be a God-honoring person and all of these things, but they struggle with same-sex attraction, okay? So, so no, not only, we tend to think about political issues from a purely political perspective, and we tend to think about political issues purely from a personal experience perspective. And what I want to do is I want to pull those things back and I want to say let's open the Bible and let's hear what God has to say and how that can speak into these issues. Are you with me? Still want to do it? <laughs> Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we depend on you today. And we are thankful for your grace and your forgiveness in our lives. And I pray, God, that as the people of God, uh, that you would help us to have grace um, toward one another during this series. And Lord, would you help me uh, as I have studied and um, worked to determine how we might be able to speak into this issue of gun control, specifically from a theological perspective. Um, I pray, God, that you would help me to communicate well and that also you would translate my words into precisely what each one of us here needs to hear. And so, God, we need you in these, these few moments. Um, may our hearts uh, 
and our minds and our Bibles be open. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, well, let's, let's get a little bit of perspective in terms of what's going on in our culture for gun control. Uh, gun control has really been brought to the forefront of our minds since the mass shootings in Aurora that I've already mentioned last July. Uh, and then just a few short months later, uh, we had another mass shooting at uh, Sandy Hook Elementary in December. And uh, those two issues, probably more than any others, have reminded the, the have kind of captured our collective attention as a culture and brought gun control to the forefront. And um, everyone agrees on one thing, that these acts of mass killing are absolutely atrocious and they need to stop. It doesn't matter where you land on gun control uh, and legislation and laws and all of that, all everyone agrees that that kind of violence is absolutely atrocious and needs to stop. The debate, though, is, is whether about is whether to restrict gun laws uh, or enforce, have higher enforcement of gun laws or more gun laws in light of these shootings. And so our response in, the, in, the, in the, the debate is not so much about whether or not killing is okay. It's, it's about how do we prevent more killing and particularly mass killing. And so uh, on one side... You have uh, a side that says, it is my right as an American to carry a gun, so don't take away my right. Guns don't kill people. People do. And uh, the, the folks that land on this side politically like to point out that way more people die uh, from car accidents or drunk driving than gun deaths. And if you were to add up all the people that died from mass shootings versus in one year the number of people that die just in regular car accidents, let alone the number of people that die from uh, from drunk driving accidents, then you would say, then they would say clearly, uh, in terms of number, sheer numbers of deaths in our country, this is not that big of an issue, and so let's not overreact, and please don't take away my means um, to carry a gun. Uh, this is uh, this picture also d- illustrates this side uh, very well. Here's gun control for dummies. Uh, you have a law-abiding citizen. He carries a handgun and a rifle, and then after gun control. The law-abiding citizen doesn't have anything, but the criminal still has his gun. And, and the, it's meant to be funny, at least a little bit. Just trying to lighten the load a little bit. Uh, but a lot of people you know, say, well, criminals are going to have their guns whether you control laws or not. And so really all you're doing with gun control is you're unarming the public. Um, on the other side is... We need to make it harder for people to get guns so that people don't kill people. Okay, guns don't kill people, people do, but people use guns to kill people. And so we need to make it harder. We're not going to stop everything. And yeah, criminals who are just sort of hell-bent on getting a handgun are going to find a handgun. There's nothing we can do about that, but we need to make it harder. Uh, And then the discussions on on that side, that political side of surrounded around universal background checks, Uh, Clip restrictions, that is the number of bullets that fit into a clip. Uh, Really classifying arms into very clear categories. Is this a handgun, uh, an assault rifle, a rifle, all these kind of different categories, which can be uh, very, very difficult to do. But these are 
These are political debates that find their foundations mostly in personal opinion and personal experience. And so if you have a law enforcement background, of course you would want to have the right to own a handgun. If you lost someone in the mass shootings of Colorado, uh, recently you certainly want to be in fa- you certainly are in favor of gun control. And if you grew up in a hunting family, you certainly don't want to, uh, the government to rob your right of having a shotgun. But let's not think about these things from a political perspective. Let's think about them from a theological perspective. So I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. I want to start reading at verse 38, and I'll read through verse 48. I'll give you a second to click there. In churches, there used to be the sound of pages churning, and now it's just silent as everyone scrolls their way and taps their way to the scriptures. But it's all good. It's all good. It's chapter 5, starting with verse 38. Matthew chapter 5, starting with verse 38. Um, It says this, and you can follow along with me as I read. I think it will be on the screens as well. I'm not sure. But it says this, You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, then let him have your cloak as well. And if someone forces you to go one mile, then go with him two miles. Forgive to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. But you have also heard it said to love your neighbor and to hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he who causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, are you not doing uh, more than others? For do not even the pagans do that. But be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, this is a classic passage of Scripture in which the teachings of Jesus are turned the other cheek. And if you were to to, uh, name one phrase, maybe, that that people fly around all over in, in the Christian world when it comes to how are we to respond to injustice against us, it would probably be this one, this one, this one phrase. We need to turn the other cheek. Uh, But but that That sounds kind of wimpy. There, I said it. And so if you don't want to be wimpy, you you tend to say, well, Jesus was just a really nice guy, and he doesn't really expect us to live this way. He's just telling us what we should strive for. And because we're sinful and broken, we'll never, ever get there. And so turn your other cheek is just sort of exists out in abstraction, and we shouldn't do it because it sounds wimpy, and I don't want to be wimpy. And uh, I really don't want to be a wimpy Christian because there's nothing worse in the world than a wimpy Christian. <laughs> and so um, we need to understand what this really means. Can I have a volunteer? A volunteer. Stephen Hall. Come on up here, buddy. That's right. Come on up here on the platform. Now, there's a, a particular detail in this passage. Uh, are you nervous? A little bit. A little bit. That's all right. That's good. So am I. Um, <laughs> there's a detail in this passage that I think is really important. It says, if you, are, if you are hit on the right cheek. Now, in ancient culture, the left hand was not used for, for anything. And so if I'm hitting... Stephen, and I hit, have to hit him on the right cheek, which is, this is your right cheek, right? I know, left, I know my left and right. 
If I need to hit Stephen on the right cheek, then this is not just a slap. This is a backhanded slap. And there's only, thing, one, there's only one thing worse than a slap in the face. A backhanded <laughs> slap in the face. Thank you very much. I just wanted to demonstrate the right and the left. Okay? That's all. You don't have to say anything. That's it. Let's give him a hand. Wasn't that... If someone hits you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. What, what Jesus is saying here is that implicit in the message is that you have been not just hit, but you have been, you have, violence has been brought against you and also an insult. To slap someone on the right cheek with the back of the hand was not just to bring violence against them, but it was to insult them and to uh, to elevate yourself as being a better, as, as having a higher status or more importance than them. It's not just violence, it's violence and insult. Are you with me? That's the implication of what Jesus is talking about. And so when he says to churn the other cheek, he isn't saying, if you're a Christian, you ought to be a doormat. If you're a Christian, you ought to be wimpy. If someone hits you, just gladly churn the other cheek. This is a, what he's demonstrating and what he's instructing is, if someone brings violence and insult to you, do not allow the insult to stick. Don't allow them to insult you in that way. Don't allow them to put you down. But instead, being proud and in who you are in Christ, turn to the other cheek as well, which essentially says to the offender, do what you will, but do it to me as an equal. Okay? I like that. Ooh. <laughs> That's good. It is good. It is good. Because so many times this passage is misunderstood as, as Christians ought to just be these people that just sort of lay over in the face of injustice. That's not Jesus' teaching. Jesus is teaching a third way. He's saying, offer the other cheek, which says to your offender, do whatever you will to me, but do it to me as an equal. Do it to me as one who stands. Look me in the eye and hit me again. Essentially is the teaching here. It's a third way that Jesus is teaching. It's not if someone hits you in the right cheek, then offer them an equal insult and equal violence. It's not just lay over and let them do what they will. It's stand up tall. There's a third way. There's a third option of how we face violence in the world and against us. Are you with me? that makes sense? Then Jesus gives another example, and he says, if someone sues you for your tunic, you ought to offer them your cloak as well. Think of it this way. Uh, if someone sues you for your coat, you ought to offer them your shirt as well. Think of it that way. There's two layers of clothing. And someone is, and, and the, the picture that Jesus is painting here is that someone is suing you for a debt that you are not able to pay, and they are trying to uh, get all they got, all you've got out of you in order to meet the debt, which itself is a kind of violence. Do you agree? Maybe not. But it's not just physical violence that Jesus is addressing here. He's saying if someone is suing you to pay a debt that you cannot pay, and so they are asking for your outer coat, then you ought to also offer them your shirt 
as well. Now, what does this do? Well, in our culture, skin and nakedness is rather celebrated and flaunted everywhere. In this culture, to be showing to show skin in public was to be shameful. It was it was looked down upon and it would bring shame upon the person that was showing skin or naked. So in this instance, though, Jesus says, if someone is suing you and forcing you to offer your coat, you ought to offer your shirt as well. And in doing so, you will shame them because of your nakedness. You will shame the one who is coming after you with the violence of of an unforgiven debt. Make sense? And so Jesus, again, is offering, no, don't sue them back for what they owe you. Don't meet their violence with an equal or greater violence, but neither is the option to just lay down and let them do whatever. Jesus says, "Turn turn the other cheek also, a third way. Jesus says, offer your shirt as well, which would bring shame upon the one, the offender. And then he gives yet another example to teach us more about what his way and the way of the gospel really is. He says to go the extra mile. If someone forces you to go one mile, you ought to also go a second mile. Well, the, the context of this, and, and, and anyone in this culture, the original audience would have known this right away, but this is a military context where Roman soldiers were allowed by law to have citizens carry their gear one mile. And, and so that was, I mean, so you found, you found there were soldiers everywhere asking people to carry their, their uh, materials, their gear, their, their goods, uh, one mile. Help me out. Carry this. And by law, the citizen had to obey if a soldier asked to go that one mile. But Jesus says, if someone, if there is a, a soldier forcing you to do this and to walk one mile, then the way that you should do this, which is itself is a kind of violence, what you ought to do then is you ought to walk an extra mile. And put that soldier in a really weird place. Because just as the law allowed for them to carry, a citizen to carry their gear one mile, it was just as strictly enforced that they could not carry it the second mile or any further than the one mile. And so for if if you if someone forces you to carry this the one mile, going the second mile puts that soldier in a place of shame for disobedience to the law and to his commanders and those in authority of him. It puts him in this place of, 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 of what, if my, what if my superiors find out that this, this guy, like I can't make him stop. He just keeps carrying my stuff, right? I mean, like in our context, this, we, we have, we've got to place ourselves in the culture to realize how, what, what a dangerous position this puts the soldier in through love. Right? The, the citizen is, is walking an extra mile out of love. He's defeating the violence through love, not through greater violence and not through equal violence. You see, over and over and over again, the teaching of Jesus is that when injustice is brought upon you, when violence is brought upon you, 
that violence is not to be met with an equal violence because violence begets more violence. That over and over and over again is the teaching of Scripture. And so Jesus is teaching us a third way. And as the people of God who follow Jesus, we too should seek a third way in our lives. Now, as I've already said, implicit in this instruction is that violence begets more violence. And therefore, violence cannot be overcome by taking up arms. This is the teaching of Jesus. You want to overcome violence? It's not by taking up arms and matching that through the same kind of violence. It's simply not. For what war has ended war? I mean, a a war might have ended a war. A war might have ended. But there has been no single war in history that has forever ended war and brought peace. Derek Webb is a Christian uh, singer and songwriter who loves controversy. And so he sings about controversial issues all the time. And he has this lyric in one of his songs. It says this, peace by way of war is like purity by way of fornication. And so we need to consider the teachings of Jesus. Implicit in his message over and over and over again is that violence begets more violence. And that when violence is brought against us, it should not be met with an equal or greater violence. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 52, he says uh, to Peter, put the sword back in its place, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. And uh, I want to just give you uh, uh, some statistics and some perspective on this. Uh, A gun in the home increases your chance of being killed by gunfire by 72%. You see, Jesus says, put the sword away because those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And that we ought to turn the other cheek, that there's this third way that's available to us as the followers of Christ. And then that plays itself out in the world in all kinds of ways, where just by virtue of having a gun in your home, you're 72% more likely to die by gunfire in your life. And so we just have to wrestle with these things. I'm not making any statements about whether you own a gun, and I'm not mad at you if you do, and and, and I'm not making any statements about the military uh, in our country. I'm just saying this is the, the message of Jesus, and we ought to allow that to speak into the conversation when we talk about these political issues, particularly about gun control. We ought to at least be willing to wrestle with this. But what I see happening in the Christian church is that we don't wrestle. We allow only our political perspective and our personal experience to inform our our political alignment. And we ought to take our faith into that because our faith is central to who we are. We ought to return to the word and say, what did Jesus say about these issues? Now, Jesus doesn't talk about gun control. Guess what? Guns are in his culture. But he says a lot about when injustice is brought upon us, when violence, when we are... Uh, when violence is brought upon us, how we ought to respond. In his book called On Killing, Lieutenant Colonel David Grossman records that in World War II, up to 85% of riflemen did not fire their weapon at an exposed enemy. You have a picture of this, a line of soldiers, all armed, guns loaded, 
enemy exposed in World War II, and 85% of them did not shoot a bullet, even if it was to save their own life or the life of their friend in World War II. The military saw this as a deep problem for military victory, (laughs) as you might imagine. And so the military said, well, how do we get these people on the front lines to actually shoot? What do we do that will help train them to kill? And so they decided that um, what they needed to do was to enable the ability to kill, the army changed their training to include not just here's how the gun works and here's how you load it and all of these things, but to include desensitization to violence, conditioning, and a denial defense mechanism. Denial defense mechanism is that in the military, there's always someone that stands in authority to them telling them to shoot. And so if I shoot and kill, the denial mechanism is someone told me to do it. And so if they could desensitize soldiers... And then they could condition them for violence and then give them the ability to a denial mechanism. Then we'll find that much more soldiers will shoot at the enemy. And so exposure to violence. Well, how, how did this work? Well, uh, let me say this too. Every aspect of killing on the battlefield was rehearsed, visualized, and conditioned. And by the Vietnam War, the non-firing rate among riflemen was only 5%. So between World War II where 85% did not shoot, which means only 15 did, only 15% did, to the Vietnam War, that had totally changed because of desensitization, conditioning, and uh, rehearsing, or the denial defense mechanism. And my point is this. Exposure to violence enabled more violence for the soldiers rather than cripple it. It led to acceptance of violence rather than revulsion. More and more exposure to violence normalized it rather than leading to revulsion. And and the, the, the message of Jesus is that we ought to explore a third way. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Violence begets more violence. Never in Scripture... Does Jesus say, you were hurt, offended, the object of injustice has been brought against you, you now ought to go seek revenge and do the same? Jesus never says that. But actually, Jesus always subverts the violence and offers a third way. Now, the author goes on to say this. This will blow your mind. Our society has found a powerful recipe for providing killing empowerment to an entire generation of Americans. Producers, directors, and actors are handsomely rewarded for for creating the most violent, gruesome, and horrifying films imaginable. Films in which the stabbing, shooting, abuse, and torture of innocent men, women, and children are depicted in intimate detail. Make these films entertaining as well as violent, and then simultaneously provide the adolescent viewers with candy, soft drinks, group companionship, and the intimate physical contact of a boyfriend or girlfriend, and then they understand what then understand that these adolescent viewers are learning to associate these rewards with what they are watching. If we had a clear-cut objective of raising a generation of assassins and killers who are unrestrained by either authority or the nature of the victim, it is difficult to imagine how we could do a better job. We are reaching the stage of desensitization in which the inflicting of pain and suffering has become a source of entertainment, vicarious pleasure rather than revulsion. And we are learning to kill 
and we are learning to like it. You see, as a church, we have to grapple with these issues. We have to be able to grapple with these issues. The essential point of the book is this, or not the essential point of the book, but one of the points that he makes is, is this, that, that what worked for the military under very restrained order and very clear-cut authority is now the same method of training is being used in society except without the clear authority and without the clear uh, restraint. And so we must be able to grapple. Well, what is this third way that Jesus offers and and what does it look like in our context? Um, I would encourage you to consider this, that the third way that Jesus talks about is, generally speaking, the way of love. The way of love. The passage that we read in Matthew Chapter 5, verse 44 says, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You see, in this passage in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus, there's all kinds of sayings that say, You have heard it said, but I say to you. All the you have heard it said is pulling from Old Testament law. And then Jesus is saying, But I now say unto you. And what Jesus is doing is he's not saying, Now that is thrown out in favor of something brand new. He's saying, That's what the law required of you. But now under grace and love, I'm going to take that even further. In other words, you have heard it said, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. Well, that's easy, Jesus says. Anybody can love your neighbor and anybody can hate your enemy. And so to take that principle further and let love explode like it couldn't under the law, then we ought to love our neighbor and our enemy. And we ought to pray for those who persecute us. And you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But, but I say to you, turn the other cheek and, and offer your shirt as well and, and, and uh, go the extra mile. He, he's not saying, oh, no, that, that doesn't count. That's, that's no good. He's saying, the law could only take you so far. But now under love and grace, I want to move you and I want to push you even further. And so the way, this third way that Jesus is talking about is the way of love in the world. And implicit to the gospel and what is being said over and over and over again. And I want you to hear this, church. I want you to consider this, church, is this. There are more powerful forces in the world than a bullet. And that force is love. That's the third way that Jesus calls us to. Is to love those who persecute us. To love those who bring injustice against us. Romans chapter 12 says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. So Paul, picking up on the, on the message of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus, begins to put it in his own words. And where the ministry of Jesus was always, there's, there's a third way. Consider the third way. Fight to find the third way. Don't, don't repay evil with evil. But neither are we to just lay down and let the world have, our, have its way. But let's find a third way. And Paul picks up on that. Do not repay anyone. The Greek there means anyone. That was a joke, very under the radar. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. And if it is possible, right? Because Paul recognizes this is a difficult issue 
So, so, he, so he has all sorts of qualifiers, right? And he says, if it is possible, and as much as it depends on you, right? There's two, two pretty big qualifiers. Live at peace with anyone and everyone. He says, do not take revenge. Do not take revenge. Listen to these instructions. Do not repay evil for evil. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, and I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will reap burning coals on his head. So do not overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It is so easy for us to think that the only way to overcome evil and violence or offense is through the same evil, violence, and offense, the same or greater. But Jesus declares there is a third way. There is a more powerful force, and that force is love, grace, forgiveness, and mercy. These are the real powers in our world, not a bullet or any weapon or any other kind of weapon of choice. You will find as you look throughout history that when Christians were persecuted, and tried to meet that persecution with the same level of violence and oppression that was being brought upon them, the church stifled. But when persecution and violence was brought upon Christians who were martyred for their faith, you find that the church flourishes and goes wild. And I think this is the truth playing out in our world because it's very easy for us to just sort of live in ideas. Yeah, love overcomes violence. Yep, great, encouraging. You have to say that. You're a pastor, awesome. But what if somebody comes into my house, right? And I have to defend myself. What happens then? Well, history seems to tell us that if we are martyred in faith, And we offer this third way, regardless of the outcomes for our own lives, the church and the gospel flourishes. And another statistic that I want to tell you is that the gun in your home is 22 times more likely to be used for suicide or homicide or in an accident than in self-defense. And so... Henry Lyman was a missionary to Indonesia in the early 1800s. Less than one year into his service, the Batak warriors, he, he came into contact with the Batak warriors. He was killed by the spear. Less than one year after, becoming, after entering the field as a missionary, he was killed by this group of warriors. And uh, today, the Batak warriors worship Christ and train missionaries in the region of Indonesia. William Tyndale of Tyndale Publishing. Many of, you are, many of your books and your Bibles are published by Tyndale Publishing. William Tyndale uh, was burned at the stake in 1536 for translating the Bible into English. 
Three years later, after three years after his death, the same king who ordered him to be put to death ordered all printers and sellers of books to provide for the free and liberal use of the Bible in our English tongue. Like, what if William Tyndale had fought back and brought a heart of anger and revenge against someone who's already angry and vengeful? You see, the message of Jesus is that we have to offer a different message. You can't overcome violence with the same sort of violence. It doesn't offer anything different to the world. And I know it's not a popular message, but that's what the Bible teaches. And listen to me, these are difficult, difficult issues. Because what would I do if someone charged into my home intent on killing my family? I don't know what I would do. But all I, all I know is that the, the gospel message never says to treat an equal violence with equal violence. There are stories of martyrs singing hymns as they die. There are stories of the, the killers becoming Christians, story after story after story. There are stories of the church flourishing from Christians taking violence on in the name of love rather than taking up arms. The message of Jesus is one, is, is one where the victory is won and evil defeated through love and not violence. And actually, Jesus lives out this third way, right? Jesus lives out this third way. When the worst kind of violence was brought upon him, he didn't take up arms and he didn't overcome violence through greater oppression. But rather, he overcame violence through a self-giving love. Like Jesus himself doesn't just say, yeah, go and do this. And then when, when faced with horrendous violence himself against him, doesn't take up arms, but rather offers himself in self-giving love and then defeats evil through the resurrection and defeats death through the resurrection. These are the real powers of our world. Well, love can't kill somebody when they're pointing a gun at me. I know. Love can't. Love can't stop a bullet. But it can change a life. And it can change a world. And it can change a nation. And then while Jesus is on the cross taking on the violence, he prays. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Can you imagine being in the throes of the worst kind of violence and against your persecutors being able to offer up the prayer, forgive them. Forgive them. I have a little bit more that I want to say. The book of Revelation, uh, many people view this book as a script uh, of what God is going to do in the world and therefore interpret it as a call to take up arms and defeat the enemy through force. Uh, many understand the book to be this way, that in the end there is uh, this tremendous battle and Christians must find themselves with the right ammunition, the right uh, items of warfare uh, in order to defeat the enemy. Uh, and this is 
made popular if you've read the Left Behind novels, you know that the Tribulation Force often wins battles because they have bigger guns, more ammunition, and a Land Rover. And uh, <laughs> they're not sporting a CRV in the middle of battle. They've got to have a Land Rover. Uh, the book, however, the book of Revelation, however, does not provide a violent script for the end of the world and how God will win in the end through violence. Uh, the book declares and the gospel declares and Paul declares over and over and over in his letters that the victory has already been won through Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross. Okay? If we, if we think that, that there needs to be a uh, violent warfare between good and evil where, where good wins in the end through violence, we have uh, shortchanged the power of the cross. And we have said that Jesus in the victory was not won at the cross and through the resurrection. And, and, and so actually what the book does through, um, through very graphic metaphor is compare two ways of life. The first way of life is the way of Rome, which is the, world, the world's uh, military superpower at the time, and who expanded and built their kingdom on dominance, oppression, and violence. They would go into a city, uh, kill or destroy, and make sure that everybody knows that they're in charge, and then expand their kingdom that way. That is compared in the book of Revelation to the second way of life, which is the self-giving love of Christ and his kingdom. And then Christians faced with persecution in Rome were called to be victorious in Romans chapter 12 and declared victorious, not through equal or greater violence, but by identifying themselves with the blood of Christ and then giving the word of their testimony. It says this, Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, they that is the Christians triumphed over him that is the accuser or the enemy by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony you see in Revelation it's not a sense of of gaining victory through greater or equal violence it's a way of gaining victory in life by identifying ourselves with the shed blood of the lamb and his resurrection that's the victory that's won in Revelation and then through the spreading of the word the testimony somebody go and tell the story this is what God has already done in Christ the victory is already won. His kingdom is being built and it's coming into the world. That's the story of Revelation. That's the good news. Thought for sure I'd hear an amen there. I'll just keep yelling. Here's the bottom line. I think I have time to do what I want to do. What does this mean personally for us? The thing that I would call you to to do and to um, be really discerning about is in your heart, do you hold bits of anger, malice, revenge, and bitterness? Because if you do, And if that's the reason that you're against gun control, and if that's the reason that you are uh, passionate about these issues is because there's revenge in your heart, then the Lord wants to work on that. I really feel like that's how we can personalize this message is make sure there's no bitterness or anger in our heart. And to tell you the truth, I don't always know what a third way looks like. If someone were to come through that door with a gun and had it aimed at me, I don't know what a third way looks like. And if one of you 
who are carrying a gun right now, because I know there are some in this congregation that do, were to stop that offender with a bullet, I would probably be thankful. That's what I mean to say when I say that these are very difficult issues to grapple with. But as I look at the scripture, I can't help but see that Jesus calls us to a third way. And I don't always know what that looks like. And we may not always have the opportunity to work that out. And so two things. Are we willing to take on violence on ourselves and maintain our faith? And do we hold any bitterness or revenge or malice in our hearts that would cause us to want to meet our offenders with an equal level of violence? Those are the difficult things. Now, real quickly, some of you will say, what about the Old Testament? I knew you were thinking it. That's awesome. Jesus is a really nice guy. Matthew chapter 5 is a very great chapter. But we also need to consider that in the Old Testament, God told people, the nation of Israel, to go and slaughter other nations without mercy, to kill every man, woman, child, every animal. What do you do with that? Well, I want to offer a thought. We tend to create a very clear distinction between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that that we tend to characterize God in the Old Testament as being mean and vengeful and judgmental and going to tell nations to slaughter other nations and all of these things. And then in the New Testament, Jesus is nice and soft and weak and, uh, you know, and all this stuff. And a lot of times we try to, you know, we're like, oh, he's not weak, he's meek, you know. And there's a difference. And, you know, we try to do all these things and we try to make these really clear distinctions. But, but let's be clear that Jesus got angry. Jesus was not someone that just you could, uh, you could, you know, just roll over if you wanted to. And, and I really, the way I picture Jesus is being very strong, very confident. And he would get business done when he needed to. And he got angry and he turned over temple tables and all of that. And in the Old Testament, we tend to place it all on the violence. But the reality is, is that there's much in the Old Testament that also promotes forgiveness and patience and restraint and all of these things. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was meant for restraint. God gave this law because he knows that our natural inclination is to meet violence with a greater violence. And so he lays down the law that doesn't give you license, but gives you restraint. And for too long, that law has been misunderstood as license. Someone is a, someone you know, brings violence or offense against me, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. It's in the Bible, so I'm going to go get him. Well, that was meant to restrain our revenge. And then, as we read today, Jesus takes that uh, in the New Testament. He says, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. And he offers us the full uh, principle behind the law, which is to love our neighbors. And so, but what about the God-directed violence in the Old Testament? Well, In the Old Testament, when, when uh, the, the God and the nation entered into a covenant with the nation of Israel, and to enter into a covenant with someone, 
uh, required 10 steps. And I won't go over 10 st- the 10 steps. In fact, we did a whole series on this a couple years ago. But one of the steps was that you would exchange enemies. In other words, if anyone is an enemy against you, they're an enemy of mine and vice versa for the two people entering into covenant partnership. And so as God enters into covenant partnership with Israel, the nation of Israel, anyone that was coming into uh, coming against Israel, God was obligated as their covenant partner to act uh, in their defense and to act in violence against them. But what happens in the New Testament is that God takes this, this wrath and this anger and this your enemy uh, and, and our, our own hearts enemy against God. Are you with me? And what God does in the Old Testament is that he takes the enemy on But instead of using direct force against a particular kind of enemy, he brings that force upon himself in the death of his son, Jesus. And so we have to frame the the violence in the Old Testament and understand the the idea and, and nuances of covenant and then realize that what God does in light of who Christ is, he takes God's wrath against sin and the enemy that we see in the Old Testament was poured out onto Christ in his death and then defeated through the resurrection. And so the new world has come in Christ and we are to live out that way, that new way, that third way, the way of the new world right now. And so that at least helps give some sort of framework for what about this versus this. As I said in the beginning, and I really mean this, I know I yelled and I screamed and I flapped my wings. But I want you to know, like I've already said, these are difficult issues to deal with. So you may leave here today saying, oh, he didn't talk about that and he should have. You may leave here today in total disagreement of everything I've said. I only ask of you one thing. Let's together as a community, in unity, be committed to wrestle with these issues. Be committed to allow our faith to speak into these issues. And whether you have changed your mind today as a result of what's been said or whether it has only reaffirmed your position makes no difference to me. My only goal is to offer a voice in the conversation. And I have told you today Not my personal opinion, but what I feel like the Bible says and what Jesus teaches. Thanks for listening to the Emmaus Road podcast. We hope this message has been encouraging to you. If you'd like to support the ministry of Emmaus Road, you can do so online. Just visit theroadfc.org and click online giving.